Dr. David Lippman. Welcome back to the Roadman Podcast. Thanks very much for having me again. It's uh, cool to see. We were just talking off air. It's, I was just saying it's cool to see how much you've evolved. And you know, I think it was October 2022 I was on. So, you know, call that 14, 15 months. It's been months. that long. I think so. Maybe a little bit later. But I mean, the point being, uh, the evolution has been cool to see. And so congratulations. It's, uh, it's awesome stuff. I had a milestone birthday recently. I was 40. And as a 40 milestone birthday kind of has you reflecting, I was no different. And I actually honestly don't feel that much different at 40 than I did at 30. And I wish someone had told me when I was 30 that you would feel the exact same at 40. And I maybe would have calibrated my, you know, my, like I was pacing a time trial. I wouldn't have sprinted it at the start. I would have had a more even distribution of speed across the last 10 years because I definitely haven't slowed down. But I was looking at friends and, you know, flicking on their Instagram, some friends I've lost touch with, some who are still in my life. And I was looking at those who dropped away from sport, endurance sport specifically. And it seems to follow a template that there's a gap. And the gap can be for many reasons. They have a kid, they lose a job, stress is high, and then they don't come back from the gap. So that's what I want to chat a little bit about today. I want to explore this gap. The break in sport is almost always a precursor to a huge decline in health, I've noticed with those. Have you noticed this type of gap in friends of yours or athletes you're observing? Yeah, for sure. I think there's there's so much to unpack there. Sometimes they say uh, you don't stop playing sport or, or doing sport because you get old. You get old because you stop doing sport. And that's probably yeah. the way to frame it. And I mean, there's so much to talk about because there's when do you stop? And you and probably me for to some degree are talking about people who did sport into their adult years beyond the end of college, so to speak, or university. But there's a huge problem with people stopping sport at school or before they finish school or just after school. There are some huge step-offs, you know, particularly in the, in the female population where, you know, around the teenage years, maybe 16, 17 is a real problem. And then definitely once they finish school and there's no more compulsory sport, maybe they go to the gym a bit or something like that. And then it's about what are they doing there? Are they doing enough strength work or is it all, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable in the gym situation. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go and like ride on the bike or jog on the treadmill or something like that. So yeah. I think there's a huge role for better physical education. And by that, I mean, truly educating people on physical culture. Uh, so teach them how to lift weights, teach them how to live a healthy life rather than go play some sport. So a true curriculum to enable them to be successful as they age. And then as you yeah. say, now there's a huge step off again because of whatever gets in the way for ex-athletes or people who thought of themselves as athletic. I think there's a huge delta there as well that we need to work on as a society. I remember sitting in an interview for a job once and they asked me what my greatest success in coaching was. And my answer was really crystal clear. It's a kid I worked with his mother was an Eastern Bloc gymnast uh, and he had this insane work ethic. He started seeing me when he was 11 or 12 and I worked with him until he was 19. And by the time he was 19, he could write his own programs, do all of his own strength programming, all his own endurance programming. And I was there to basically just talk to him and supervise a little bit. And my success is I look at him now and he's, I think, nearing on, it's probably in his mid to late 20s. And he just lives a really active lifestyle, does yoga, climbs rocks, runs, lifts weights, super healthy, super active. And I'm like, that's successful. You know, he's, he almost made it, he almost made it pro to be honest, but he didn't, but he's kept being active. And like, that's the real success there. I mean, if he'd gotten one contract and lost it, then who cares? Yeah. It needs to be a lifetime pursuit. There's no, Nike used to have a slogan before just do it. And it was, there is no finish line. Yeah. I remember. I actually think in a lot of ways, that's a better slogan. Yeah. I love that. I mean, Again, sometimes I, I've been asked a lot of times in my life because I've never been particularly good in athletics. It's like, you know, what are you training for? And my standard answer is life. 
And if you think about it that way, you know, there's all sorts of people branding things, you know, centenarian decathlons, whatever. Like, however you need to brand it up, it just has to work for you. Whatever you have to do needs to align with your why in life so that you can keep going because motivation is very fleeting, but a, a true sense of why and understanding that helps you stay committed and disciplined. But it's almost standards, isn't it? If you think about goals and standards for me are very different. People set goals all the time in New Year. My goal is I'm going to drop 10 pounds. And I've seen this so many times with friends who are maybe on the breadline with earning cash. Their goal is, okay, I want to make a little bit of extra cash. And sometimes it happens, but most of the time it doesn't happen or it does happen for a short period of time. But their standard is they just get by, they just pay the bills. But something unexpected will come in, like a, a new tax hike or a new levy, a new housing tax where it comes in. And all of a sudden they need to pay an extra 1500 or 2000 a month. And they still find a way to almost get by because their standard is they almost get by. And when I sort of transpose that into the athletic realm, I think for me, that's the most important thing. It's not a short-term goal to win a race. It's, well, I have a standard that I want to be healthy. I want to be able to respond to a text message from a friend, whether it's, do you want to go for a hundred mile bike ride or do you want to run a half marathon tomorrow? And it's like, boom, I'm ready. And that's the standard I try and keep. But I think so often we don't set a standard for ourselves. And that's why it leads to, you know, this massive complication and health problems long tail down the line. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Is it something that came to mind while you said that uh, Ben Ryan, I don't know if you're familiar, but I think he's now director of performance or something similar at Brentford, but previously was with the Fiji rugby sevens and won a gold medal. And his famous statement is the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And I wonder how that applies in the situation is like the standard you're happy to accept in your life or whatever, the one that you're happy to, uh, except is, is where you'll end up. It's, that's the capacity you'll end up at. So if you think that it's okay to just be able to sort of jog to the bus if you need to, it's probably where you'll end up. But if you think the standard is being able to say yes to your friends, then that's the standard you'll, be, you know, you'll, you'll uh, fall to. I've seen a quote on it. Like, look, this isn't any sort of uh, solid reference, but I've seen a quote. I think it was like on a meme or something. But a shocking amount of the population, I think it's a 98% of the population will never sprint when they're After past 30. the age of 25 or something ridiculous like this. That was a jarring enough statistic. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense to me. I, there's a couple of guys that I, I follow that I think have been popularizing this thing. Max Shimano comes to mind and um, somebody else I can't remember. But yeah, it's actually something I've been reflecting on because I do a ton of endurance running, but I'm like, I wonder if I could sprint. I mean, I've run pretty fast, but like pretty fast and sprinting are not the same. And I'd be, <laughs> like, I'd be, I think I'd be comfortable and not too worried about tearing something because I'm not fast enough to really tear something. Only fast people tear things. But, uh, and I'd be pretty happy with my tendons, but yeah, I wonder this a lot. I mean, cycling audience is a great example. I say this a lot of the time. Like, cycling's really, really good for you, except not so much for your bones and tendons. Your tendons and bones yeah. pretty much do nothing in cycling. And I, I, I'm concerned with people who cycle as they age, not because of the cycling, but because of what they're not doing. It's they're not running or they're not lifting weights or they're not something else. And it's just when you go to another activity that you realize, like, I like a little bit of rock climbing. And so I'll go back to the wall, but I could have, you know, six weeks, eight weeks sometimes if I'm in a racing block towards the end of the season where I don't climb. And then I go back to the wall and there's a very nice grading system on the wall where it's like four ABC, five ABC. And you jump back into what is quite a modest target for you from previous experience. And the doms the next day, it's out of control. It feels like you crashed in a bunch sprint. Like you can't even brush your teeth. It's so bad. Yeah. I mean, rock climbing is particularly niche around the forearms as well. It's particularly bad if you want to type the next day. <laughs> it's brutal. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's so true though. I mean, interestingly, there's a ton of cyclists running at the moment and they are machines. They run so well. It's insane to see. It's just their injury resilience is so low in that context because of, you know, cycling isn't running and the, as I said, bone and tendon loading is significant. So, uh, yeah, I think it's the same reasons that people say it's good when you age are the ones that makes it bad while you're age. Same as swimming. Like the reason it's good as you age is the reason it's bad while you age as well. I looked across, we talked about that gap in life, but I was looking at that gap from uh, annual perspective recently, the turn of the year, I went back and I looked across behind the podcast, we have a, a, a coaching company and that was actually a precursor to the podcast. We don't really publicize it anymore because we're kind of always maxed out with clients, but we've about a hundred or so clients working with coaches behind the podcast. And when I was looking across at all the athletes, obviously I have that overview across all the coaches. And I was looking across at who achieved their goals and who didn't achieve their goals across the season. And the biggest thing that I could pick out, it wasn't people who were using ketones, who got away for an altitude block. It was the people who had no multi-week blocks off in the middle of the year. So that's no sickness, no injuries, no extended holidays. Like I need to go away skiing with the, with, you know, the, the missus and the kids for a week. No massive stress. And I just wondered, like, as athletes, we spend so much time looking at these marginal gains. Should we be more optimizing for how do we avoid those prolonged periods? Yeah. And that's maybe where the conversation should be happening more, where I hear very few conversations happening around that. People are majoring in the minors, I suppose, is another way to say it. Yeah. You need to listen to me more. No. Jokes aside, um, my biggest thing, like, I am so risk averse with injury for this reason exactly. The best predictor of performance is injury-free time. One of the only things that tracks, so the best predictor of injury is previous injury. And one of the things that tracks best with performance is injury-free time. There's, Interesting. there's a, I think it was like a five-year study in Australian track and field. And the thing that correlated best with performance was injury-free time. And that, all that says to me is the thing you need to be doing is avoiding injury and illness at whatever cost that is. And it also says to me that your floor is much more important than your ceiling. So your best training weeks and your best training blocks mean much less in my mind than your worst ones across whatever period you're looking at. So trying to set an appropriate floor and not go below that, even with travel or whatever else, is so crucial in my opinion. So anybody I'm talking to in a coaching capacity or in an advisory capacity, I'm always like, you just need to be risk averse in that. Whatever you can do to avoid this stuff, even if you leave a couple of percentage out there, I think the percentages you leave out there this year are going to pay dividends next year and the year after and the year after. And that's the biggest challenge with so much of our research or the way we practice is like, what does this insert supplement, insert program, insert whatever do on this day or this week or this month or this block of training? Not what does it do in the next five years? What are the cumulative effective benefits? If it's 0.1 of a percent better every day, that's going to be inconsequential in any timeline that isn't multiple year. That's an absolutely beautiful expression. It's more important to have the floor than a ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even if you're thinking about habits and building a healthy lifestyle and James Clear, like this is all James Clear's work, but he talks a lot about setting an un, like setting a standard that's uncomfortably low to start with. That's too easy to not do. So the example he gives is if you want to do a hundred push-ups in a day, or if you want to get to doing a hundred push-ups, don't do a max effort today. Do one push-up a day for a week. It's so small you can't not do it. And then but next week you have to do two. So by the time it gets to a difficult amount or a time consuming amount that you may have a reason not to do it. It's already a habit. You've been doing it for months already. So by the time it's call it 30 or 40, it's 
it's almost a year down the track and it's like, oh, I can do 40 push-ups in a day. So all of a sudden you're doing 40 push-ups in a day. All of a sudden, yeah, 100 isn't that far off. It's almost like the threshold of action, I think about that as. I was talking to a friend recently and he was talking about his goals for the year and his goals are massive for the year, but this is someone who's been very inactive for a period of time. And he was almost insulted when he was asking me about his goals and I was like, find your shoes. Like that should be your goal. Like you should have a minimum, like the threshold of action should be so low for you today that it's like, oh, in an entire day, I can surely find time to get a battery of my heart rate strap and find my shoes. That's all I have to do today. And now tomorrow we're building on that. And now the next day we're building on that. People set these huge lofty goals and then the threshold for action is just too high that it's just like, you know what, it's just too intimidating to get started on. 100 push-ups a day. Yeah, 100%. You need to, and you need to set in those little wins as well. They all need to be part of the wins because that will drive success. The challenge with healthy habits generally or things that are what most people would consider healthy is they're more like paying cash. You have to earn that up front. You pay the cost up front, which is I have to do the work before I get the cash. Whereas unhealthy things, generally it's the other way around. It's a credit card. It's I get to have the fun up yeah. front and then I have to pay with a hangover or I have to pay with a insert something else. So because of that, you have to build in wins into little sub goals so that you can actually do that healthy behavior, right? So if it's going, instead of going for the 10K run, it's like, all I got to do is heart rate strap, battery, shoes. And then you're like, oh, and if I get out the door, that's a bonus. So now you feel like you've done extra, which is then perpetuating. And I think you mentioned James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is yeah. a great book. But one of the ideas he has on the kind of builds on this as well is this idea of a vote for the type of person we want to become. Yep. So if we find our battery for our heart rate strap and our runners, okay, that's one vote in the, yes, I'm now a runner camp. And the more balance we can cast to say, yes, I'm a runner, that changes our identity. And an identity shift is super powerful. If I think back to periods in my life when I've been the least healthy and the least fit, I went on this kind of serial entrepreneur route where I was setting up so many businesses, I was balancing five or six different things and managing venture capital and stuff. And I totally lost sight of my health goals because I thought I'm no longer a pro athlete. I'm no longer chasing pro contracts. I'm retired. And I was just not cycling. And I was gone on this entrepreneurial thing. And the only thing that eventually pulled me out of it when I caught myself on and was like, I'm putting on weight. I'm actually pretty unhealthy. Even though I was by any metric, whether it's FTP, body fat, I'm a very unhealthy dude. I hadn't changed that identity because I'd historically cast enough votes where I was like, no, I'm an athlete. I'm an athlete that's in bad shape. I'm in like an extended winter, but I'm an athlete. So I put myself in the situation straight away where I was like ringing back up the national team and I was like, hey, I want to get back on the track. You know, what can I do? Can I get involved in the on the tandem or something like that? And I'm going over to these camps grossly overweight, but that was getting me back into the environment, which was the catalyst to me getting back fit again. But that was all because of how I see myself and that identity. Yeah. And you also engineered your environment, right? You intentionally put yourself in a position where people are going to be supportive around you. The standards, back to what we said before, are very high. When you turn up to that camp, they would have looked at you and you would have thought, geez, I'm below the standard here. I have to pick this up, right? Versus if you went by yourself, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to do a little bit better. So, I mean, part of what you did was a level of self-awareness, which is I know that I can cope in here and I know this will be good for me. But the other thing is, you know, you set really high standards and, and held them. 
Excuse the short interruption. As you can see from the background, I'm over in beautiful sunny Girona, but this isn't my reality. Normally I'm time crunched in Dublin, need to make the most of every single error. That's why I heavily rely on my Watt bike. I love it and I recommend it to you because it just works. There's no 10 minute setup, no unfolding legs, banging my shins off stuff, or wrestling to take a back greasy wheel off. Just jump on and it works. It's also compatible with all the major e-gaming platforms, connects instantly. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend it any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com and use the code ROADMAN10. That's ROADMAN10. T-E-N, and that's going to knock you 10% off your Watt bike today. I reckon identity is, I'm not sure if James Clare talks about this, I reckon identity is a subjective measure rather than an objective measure. Yeah, it's completely subjective. It's how you see yourself because it's completely different to how someone else sees you. Because at that point, when you you still believe you're a cyclist, if you walk down to the street and said to somebody, do you think I'm a professional cyclist? I'm not sure they would have said yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but so it's completely subjective, and even how you see yourself. If you ask somebody, like you know, I'm sitting here on the podcast with you. I see you as a successful podcaster. You may or may not feel that. You may or may not have somebody else who disagrees with you. Right. Joe Rogan may look at you and maybe think yes, maybe think no. It's hard to know, but it's completely subjective. So you need a degree of like to create a term here, like functional delusionism. Yeah. Well, you have to believe. I once had a tutor at university. I'll never forget this. This is my first year of university, which is dating me a little bit, but you know, a good 20 years ago. And he said to me, I remember saying to him, I hate these self-assessments. We used to have to give ourselves a grade out of 10. And he said, if you don't give yourself a 10, I am absolutely not giving you a 10. I was like, oh, but I hate doing that. I don't feel like it's 10. He's like, well, if you don't think it's your best work, how am I going to tell you it's the best thing you could do? <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, this is so uncomfortable. But he had a really good point here, which is you kind of, if you don't think it's, if you don't believe it, then no one else is going to believe it. So there's definitely a component of having to build that and build around and, and living into that expectation, right? So if we have to live into the expectation of being an athlete, what does an athlete do? Behave that way until you are that, until it, it becomes your, your habits become that and eventually your identity changes. We talked about those gaps looking at a, a training season and you want to avoid those multi-week gaps. Obviously, injury is one of the ways and we can come back and touch on that. But illness is another one. You know, a typical person, I've seen a study recently, I think it was two to six illness events per year in the general population, which is massive. And when I reflect back on my health and happiness and I kind of view them in tandem, there seems to be quite a big correlation, at least anecdotally for me, between health and happiness. At the times I've been happiest, I've had the least frequent instances of illness. Is there a correlation between the two? 100%. I couldn't agree more. There's Eric Brockman was an editor of a book and he had this website. I can't remember exactly, but he had a forum. And basically the thesis was each year he'd release a book. And the book was a series of essays by some of the world's best minds. We're talking Neil, Gra Neil deGrasse Tyson, Feynman, like these sort of people. And he would have one question and ask it to a bunch of scientists and they would answer from their field. And one of them was this idea must die. So what, what's one idea that has to die? And then he produced a book that year that was, you know, all of these essays. And I can't remember who it was, but they wrote and they basically said this, the, the germ theory model of disease needs to die because before germ theory, we had this thought of miasms. A miasm was, you know, Anthony got sick because he's done something bad in his life. You've done, you had some ill or you've done something bad, right? You were a bad person yeah. or you did whatever. And there was this global appreciation of something bad. Then we found out germs caused diseases and we've found antibiotics and now it's like this sort of single bullet, single kill thing, which is 
you have a distinct pathology, we can diagnose it with a single test and we can treat it with a single course. So it became very unilateral and we stopped looking at the greater sort of whole body system and the psychology of it all, right? And there's this huge divide in medicine between the mind and and the brain, between neurology and uh, psychology or psychiatry rather. So we're starting to get to a stage in medicine where there's more appreciation of the mind-body connection and moving back towards this whole body sort of idea. So yes, you're 100% correct. Mood, all those things will impact immune system, all of it. So you couldn't be more correct in that uh, the two are very much linked, and they, uh, but bidirectionally as well. You're going to be less happy if you're more sick more often. So they're, they're kind of yeah. bidirectional. So breaking that is very difficult, right? Breaking that cycle of, and, and athletes would attest to this with injury is like injury, unhappy, more injury, can't get back, trying to get back, you know, and it's a cycle of downward spiral and it's really hard to break. And what do we mean when we say happy? Because I have a vision of what happy means for me, but is there an objective what happy actually means? Is it low cortisol levels or is there some other objective measure for what happiness is? I don't, I mean, I'm not well versed in the, in the research, but there's nothing I've seen that suggests it's anything other than how do you feel? And, in, you know, are you happy enough day to day? I mean, there's some interesting, to use the inverse of that, there's some interesting stuff that's happening around being able to predict uh, unhappiness, depression, these sort of things with, uh, changes in gait, like walking gait and those sort of things. So there's some real interesting changes there. And it the the high level cliff notes is kind of the more metronomic things become, the worse they are in physiology. So you want a high heart rate variability, not a metronomic heart rate. You want a high variability in step rates, not a metronomic sort of step rate. So that's my read on it. It's again, I profess no level of uh, true mastery over the literature, but that's kind of the high level read I've gotten from it. And it, it, it makes some sense and it's really interesting and like insert companies here, you know, Apple's coming to tell you you're depressed at some point, uh, I'm sure, yeah. or be able to predict it. But uh, yeah, defining happiness is hard, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you've done a bunch of work on this. I'm doing a bunch of work on this myself is what is happy and how does happy look and how can I be happy, I guess. Have you read Michael Esther's Comfort Crisis? I haven't, but I, I'm, I'm sure I will like it and it's going to feed all my biases given the, the name of it. Yeah, interesting book. Definitely worth reading. And for me, yeah, I, I don't know what happiness is, but I have a little bit of a prescription that I know makes me happy. And when I leave out one of those things, I need to be training. I need to be, whether that's running, cycling, I need to be just active and breaking a sweat. And that needs to be a combination of long, slow stuff and some full gas stuff. I know if I emit one of those and I have a period where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to race. So then I typically default to not doing anything hard and just do cruisy coffee spins with friends. I know that doesn't make me happy. I know I need to lift some stuff. I know I need exposure to extreme cold and extreme heat. Not every day, but I need little bits of it. I know I need to spend time connected with my girlfriend, with family. And I know I need to be progressing in something. I need to be, have something I'm chasing. Like I'll read a lot about blockchain and I need to do something that makes smoke come out my ears. And when I have that sort of formula, I'm happy. When I start thinking... I can admit one of those things. I'll, I won't focus on training or I won't bother doing any cold work. It's like, oh, hello, darkness, my old friend. Yeah, I think that's, it's really hard to define happiness, but it's easy to talk about the ingredients that lead to it. I think you're spot on. And I think you've touched on most of them. I mean, the other things I'd say is sleep. So you need to be sleeping properly. Uh, you need to have yes, a, a, a good diet as well. Diet high and processed and, and sort of fast foods is, is never going to help anybody uh, achieve anything except for maybe some weight gain. Um, so 
yeah, I'd say those are the other missing pieces there. You definitely need to have a sense of meaning and maybe that's what you're talking about, your learning. Maybe that's where you derive your meaning from as well. But I think you touched on community and that's a huge part of it as well. I think it's the bit that we don't really talk about because it's the hardest to quantify and develop. Like if I told you to start exercising, you can do that tomorrow. If I said, go find community, like how do you even start that? It's the hardest bit. It's the hardest bit. And the World Health Organization have identified loneliness as the likely biggest killer over the next decade. And the antidote to loneliness for me is community. So we need to be working on that. And like you're saying, it's not easy when you're not... 14 years old, it's hard to kind of walk up to somebody and be like, hey, you want to be my friend? You want to go hiking together? Let's go rock climbing. It's like, what's this guy's angle? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, but you just mentioned a couple of activities and I think that's how we're finding community, right? So whatever you believe about religion, good, bad, or indifferent, and however religious you want to be is is irrelevant, but religion provided people a level of community. And we are increasingly seeing that in other activities. So we can see that in Sporting activities we're seeing a lot of. And if you look at Strava stats and all those things, they'll all say, you know, communities are growing in that space um, amongst different generations as well. And then you're seeing community, whether you like it or not, around diet. People are starting to use diet as an ideology. You're seeing the same around politics and all those things. And I think that's replacing some of what the sort of slow death of religion in our society is causing. And again, I'm not necessarily pro or anti-religion. It's just what I'm observing. Yeah, you know what? Just looking on, some of the happiest people I know are religious people. I kind of had anyone that grew up in Ireland in eighties and nineties kind of had religion forced down their throat a little bit. So I was, you know, every week into mass, and then you push back on it in your twenties, like this is a load of shit. But now I'm looking at like most of the happiest people I know have some sense of spirituality about them, and even if you zoom out and you look at religion, not specifically Catholicism, any religion. It's a pretty good set of rules to live by. And in the absence of another user instruction manual for how we live our lives, it's not a bad set of rules. You know, be nice to your neighbor. Don't covet his stuff. Like, it's pretty common sense stuff. Yeah, I think the evolution of it was probably out of um, things that were observed to be good. So like, hey, this seems to create problems in society. Let's make this a rule in our organization that we don't do that. Right? Like that's kind of probably how it came about like, and without, again, don't want to slander anyone's religion. Please don't come at me. But like the reality, <laughs> re- reality of the situation is however these things evolve, they seem to evolve for a reason. You say, I say this in the sporting context a lot of the time is success leaves clues. If everybody's doing something or not doing it, it might be a reason for that because they have a vested interest in this, getting this stuff right. It's the same with religion. Like if you're organizing a society and you're using religion to do it, you're probably going to make a bunch of rules that probably help. Like don't eat this at this time because it could cause disease. Don't do this because it's going to cause social disharmony in the society, right? Don't steal your neighbor's stuff because yeah, it's probably going to be a problem. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, it's that sort of stuff, right? Zooming back into my recent birthday and feeding in my paranoia about how my whole body is about to start atrophying at the moment. From a biological perspective, what's the mechanisms at play as athletes start to get older? What's the likely impact on speed and endurance? So endurance seems to actually be pretty robust. Uh, we seem to maintain that, but I mean, you have to stimulate it. There's no question, um, but it seems to be a little bit better maintained. We tend to lose our faster twitch muscle fibers earlier. So that'll mean we get slower and less strong per se uh, for the same sort of given output. So those need more work. They decay quickest. They're the hardest to develop. You know, you're generally born with that stuff, right? So there's no one who was developed as a sprinter. Everyone was kind of born fast and then developed further. So they certainly decay quickest, hardest to develop. Uh, and that's an acute and chronic timelines. So if you're a sprinter and you take some time off, 
your speed will decay quickest more than anything else. So speed and strength certainly, or power, speed, strength certainly decay quickest. Um, and then you'll lose muscle mass, of course, but the endurance seems to be maintained. And maybe that's because our lives are more endurance-based, but it certainly does seem to be maintained. There's some really cool research by, I think, Bas van Huren, I think is his name, is a Dutch researcher looking at some of these uh, elite world champion uh, X world champions in their like seventies and eighties, looking at their VO two maxes, and they pretty pretty high, like in the fifties, sixties, I think, from memory. Please don't quote me on that, but you know that's high if you're seventy something years old. So, yeah, uh, interestingly, these guys both say they don't they don't miss days of training, and they're very risk averse in their injuries. But I digress. So, I mean, what happens? So those things happen. You lose fast twitch muscle fiber, uh, definitely function, and, and probably some fibers as well. So you need to maintain that. You get a level of what they call anabolic resistance, which means it's harder to put on muscle mass. Now, I'll categorically say, I think, in my opinion, this is a really normal distribution thing, which is if you've achieved a certain level of muscle mass in your life, it's going to be harder to put more on, hence anabolic steroids for bodybuilders, et cetera. And I think that 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 level changes as we age, but I think that exists because my dad at 70-something years old put on like kilograms and kilograms of muscle mass because he went from doing no strength work in his whole life to a bunch of gym work. All of a sudden, got- yeah, that's what I was curious about. It's like, how much can we? So, if we have this offset from, I don't know, when testosterone starts to decline, say age at thirty-five, and we have this annual offset, but can we work against that? Because if our baseline up to that point, I'm thinking of a lot of us as endurance athletes, especially my generation, because it wasn't entirely clear, or at least it was a guarded secret, whether you should do strength training or not. I remember, you know, even working with world tour physiologists and they're like, oh, I'm not sure how much you should be in the gym. And yep. that's totally changed in the last decade. Yep. You know, there's almost a unilateral agreement that you need to be having some element of strength training year round. But for someone who's been an endurance athlete for a long time and neglected strength training, and then they get into the gym, is adding in two, three gym sessions a week going to more than offset that natural decline? I think you can, I mean, the research would say you definitely decline at a slower rate, so it's worthwhile anyway. But my personal opinion and from what I've seen is if you've gone from very little to doing quite a bit, especially if you're training properly with intensity and commitment, I think you could see an increase. The question is how long is that increase going to be sustained or is it going to be the short period? And I think you probably see a level of increase and then it's sort of normal out. I think biology is pretty much undefeated and it's inefficient to build muscle and all those things. So I think you'll see a level of hypertrophy if that's what you're after. I definitely, you'll see strength gain, but strength is mostly neurological. And we're starting to see this more and more in a mixture of blood flow restriction training research and strength training research. We're starting to really understand probably what we understood. You know, I, I certainly understood this or thought this to be true in the early 2000s when I was doing some some stuff. Where if you look at the biggest bodybuilders in the world, they are not the strongest athletes. And you look at the weightlifters, so the two polar ends of the spectrum, and there seems to be a, a huge digression or a huge decoupling of size and strength, whereas in most people it's pretty well coupled. And I think we're starting to see this. So what I'm getting at there is you can certainly, as you age, maintain strength. Now, whether you maintain muscle size probably is not going to be the case. You'll probably atrophy a little bit. But if, you know, if you, Arnold Schwarzenegger still looks big today, like he's not a small yeah. man. So there's certainly a level of uh, plastic change and then certainly an amount of maintenance you can do. Yeah, because I've definitely observed there's a, an element of old man strength which physical manual laborers carry. Like I look at my dad who's just, you yeah. know, a different generation where he just lifted stuff his whole life but never really been to the gym. Yeah. And at 70 years old, like even squeezing your tie with his hands, like he'll crush your femur. Yeah. <laughs> like it's oh, yeah. painful. Yeah, I, I remember, I'll never forget meeting a guy who was a dairy farmer 
and he was in his maybe even 80s and he had almost complete carpal tunnel syndrome which meant basically the flexors like his grip strength was completely impaired by this neurological problem he had all this muscle atrophy in his hands and yet this guy's had a vice grip he almost crushed my hands in a way that most people would have zero strength. And I was like, this guy, it's just because he's done so much work in all these compensatory muscles. So what I'm getting at is dad strength is a real thing and it's mostly neurological. There's obviously muscular components to it. There's no question. But yeah, that's a real thing. And you don't get that in the gym. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's dying uh, outside of the people who are you know ma- manually laboring. But yeah, there is a ton of neurology to strength. Um, if anyone's interested in it, like Pavel Tatsuline, is a really good one to read on this. He basically brought the kettlebell to America, a uh, really interesting Russian guy. And he's got a book called, uh, he's got a bunch of books. Anyway, one of them is about strength training and it's it's all about the neurology of developing it. And uh, his whole concept is grease the groove, which is a neurological phenomenon of like get strong in that movement, do the movement often and uh, and you'll get stronger. So. The manual laborers are an interesting one to observe because it seems like we've taken a evolutionary misstep with the amount of time we spend on screens, on phones. When I look at people who are farmers, they're builders into their 50s, into their 60s, they have a level of health and fitness which is totally different to other friends who are, you know, bankers, coders. They're, they're almost like they're not even the same species. Yeah, I mean, the research on this stuff is interesting because heavy manual labor seems to actually decrease lifespan a little bit. I think it probably improves function compared to completely being sedentary. But I think if you're moderately active, someone like yourself, if you lift enough weights, do enough, if you maintain your cardio, you'll probably be better off in the long term because of probably not acquiring so much wear and tear injury type stuff. Because yeah. most of us know the man, like friends who are manual laborers, they're forever, you know, maybe not in their 20s and 30s, but by the time they're 40, 50, there's something that's a bit funny. They've got a shoulder that's a Fall bit- Fall off scaffolding or something like exactly, that. Exactly, 100%. And like it's a high risk in that respect or they're in a funny position and they've got a back that's not 100%. So I do think there's probably it's probably like most things. It's like a, a normal distribution. If you're highly active as a result of your job or as a result of your training, it's probably not quite as good as being moderately active or something like that. Recovery is the one thing everyone's hammering down my throat saying you're going to really notice recovery. They're saying like the first thing that you'll have to cut out is multi-stage races, you know, five, yep. six day events. You're going to find recovery bad on those. Honestly, maybe my training load's not high enough at 12 hours, 13 hours a week to notice this recovery yet, but I haven't really started feeling the pinch on recovery yet. What's the the variables in your experience to determine when people start feeling uh, compromised recovery? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, look, no, 100% of coaches would tell you that young people recover better than older people do, right? But we're tending to think of it binary things. We're talking about the 20-year-old versus the 40-year-old. It's pretty gradual slope. And I think you definitely have less, we used to call it, there's this concept of adaptive reserve that a lecturer once brought up to me, which is kind of like your ability to adapt. And I think that probably speaks to recovery reserve as well. I think that's part of it. But I also think the life stress that you have, because it's your body doesn't respond to training. It responds to accumulative stresses, all of the cumulative stresses in your life. And nobody's life is more complicated at 20 than it was at 40. Like it just isn't. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. part of it. Uh, I think, you know, sleep, which is the key to recovery, definitely gets worse with age. I mean, you can try and maintain it and some people still have good sleep in their 40s or 50s, but it's not going to be as good as it was in your 20s. And if it wasn't quite good in your 20s, it's because you were doing something to ruin it, which you know, most, <laughs> people, most people did. So 
I think those it's hard to disentangle those things. It's also hard to say, you know, we talked about anabolic resistance before, which is your ability to put on muscle, but there's also like a bit of perhaps your absorption or use of things. Some nutrients isn't quite as good as we age. So it's pretty hard to disentangle. I think one thing to consider is what your total load is. And then to use stage racing as an example, like if you're doing 12 hours a week and then you do say five, 12 hour days, yeah, you're going to struggle to recover, but so would a 20 year old. Maybe they recover a little bit better than you. But if your stages are, say, four hours a day and it's a three-day stage race and you do 12 hours a week normally, probably okay. Probably not going to feel a pinch yeah. there because you're kind of conditioned to that. Where you're going to struggle, and you know the best example, and it's kind of back to where we talked about before, if I asked you to go play a game that had a bunch of high-speed running in it, that's where you're going to struggle to recover. You're going to maybe pull a hamstring, certainly be very sore for a period of time because you're not conditioned to it. So... I think more so than in our 20s, you've really got to prepare for what you're trying to do, right? And maybe that's, I'm trying to be able to say yes to everybody. And in that case, you have to do something very chaotic like CrossFit. And I'm not necessarily pro CrossFit, but like it's pretty chaotic. And I think training in that sort of sense may allow you to deal with the chaotic nature of my kid wants to do this and my mate said to do that. And I hang out with a bunch of 20 year olds who want to go play a game of pick up basketball. You mentioned changing nutrients yep. levels. Is there different supplementation regimes that we should be looking at as we age? Do those needs evolve? Uh, I think we're starting to appreciate better and better like the importance of protein. You know, if you generally, as people age, they tend to eat a little bit less protein. Uh, we, the extreme example being people who are quite elderly. Often, they talk about the tea and toast diet becomes very common, uh, and so I think you need to get as much protein as. Not, maybe not as much as possible, but most people are probably under-consuming protein, I would say is the, the first thing there. I'd say, again, I don't think this is an age-specific thing. I'm pretty bullish on creatine and its benefits for athletic performance across the full spectrum of athletics, although it's definitely more beneficial in speed power. Uh, I'd say what are you taking, like five grams? Yeah, five grams a day, every day, pretty much, as I can. Um, and then I think I'm very bullish on it in post-concussion TBI type of stuff. And Tommy Wood's done a bunch of got a bunch of really interesting content around that. Uh, and then I think it's pretty helpful for brain health in terms of both mental health aspects, but also just generally, you know, sort of processing speed, especially if you've got a low creatine diet, which is basically low animal flesh. So vegetarian, vegan, uh, particularly. And then I think there's some interesting stuff on bone health, which is a bit inconclusive, but given the cost of creatine, which is almost nothing, it's one of the cheapest supplements. Yeah, it's so is, cheap. Uh, I just, I don't see a downside to it. Like I can't, there's not a lot of side effects. I mean, you retain a bit of water maybe. If you have huge doses, you get a bit of GI upset maybe. But other than that, there's not a lot of downside to it. So it's just something that I tend to think is is important uh, for people. And then the rest of it's all pretty much based on sort of individual aspects. You might be saying fish oil might be some value for people. Yeah, there might be other things as well, but it's kind of hard to know. I'm personally a big fan of sort of magnesium to help me sleep. Uh, but yeah, I think... That's all choices. What a catch. Roadman, you know how serious I take my goal setting. And I know how serious you take it too. So whether you're chasing fitness or lifestyle goals, and you're looking for a powerful ally to support you on this journey, look no further than Huel. Huel has become my secret weapon for when I don't have time to prepare a balanced meal. It means I get the nutrition I need without sacrificing time or taste Plus, it stops me from reaching for the takeaway menu. I always throw a bottle of this banana into my backpack when I'm heading into the city, and it stops me eating junk convenience foods that don't support my training goals. 
It's handy, it's nutritious, it's 22 grams of protein. It's perfect for athletes that don't have time to cook or prepare food before a training session. It's convenient, nutritious fuel at your fingertips, ensuring you hit your daily fueling needs. Huel Ready to Drink has over 26 essential vitamins and minerals in every bottle, making sure you get 175 health benefits. Plus, it's made from amazing natural ingredients like sunflower seed, coconut, and more. And the best part, eight mouth-watering flavors. My favorite's the banana. That's what's in my backpack at the moment. You can get Huel direct to your home by going to huel.com forward slash roadman. That's huel, H-U-E-L.com forward slash roadman. Are you excited about AI and this? Because for me, when I look at all the different aspects of health wearables and all the data we have now, it seems like they all operate in their own little silos, as almost do professionals. You know, I'll go to a sports psychologist, I'll go to a physiotherapist, I'll go to a strength and conditioning coach. They all have very little, unless you're high performance and you're in one of these, you know, high performance environments where they're having group meetings and sharing data, they're all also operating inside their own silos. But the more and more I start to understand health and fitness, both from physical and mental, it's all very interconnected. Does AI give the possibility to start making these connections more and more? It does have the possibility. And the question is always going to be, like any new tool, how willing are people to use it? So if you took your aura ring to your doctor and you said, oh, listen, mate, my HRV is low and my temperature's up, most of them would look at you like you're speaking Spanish. Like you yeah, need this to, is problem. yeah, you need to want to engage with it and you need to want to learn and you need to want to do those things. And I think if you are dealing with a system that is very stressed and that could be a sub elite sport, and that could also be the medical system, could be any of those things. If you're dealing with those systems, where's the incentive and how do we remunerate and how do we create learning there? So now you've got a case of the people who want to learn, learn, and those who don't want to learn, don't learn. Now you have haves and have nots. So then you end up with maybe 10% of people who can use this stuff properly and the rest who can't. So it becomes very difficult, but could it break down some of these silos? It certainly could by creating understanding between them. But I think where we're at the moment, I'd say it's probably going to pull up a bunch of correlations for you. And we can call that AI if we want. It's probably more like an aspect of a correlation engine. And then we look at it and go like, we have to draw our own conclusions. So it becomes another tool. It's just pulling up. It's it's a flagging system. It's you know We used to have this in elite sport. You'd have these flagging systems. This guy's whatever. His profile of mood states is is elevated, like whereas is low, we need to check on him or his running load has been too high, we need to check on him. So you'd have a, a sophisticated traffic light flagging system. I think it probably takes that to another level at this stage. And then for those who can really use it as a tool, it might help them level up. But you know, talking to people who run AI coaching platforms, they don't think it's the end of coaches. They think it's just another tool that allows coaches to scale better. So it allows you to see yeah. more data, take in more data, use more data, and then make better decisions based on that and be able to see and benefit more athletes. So I think it probably, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, starts to kill off a, a level of coaches or professionals in any space that are not quite at that level. And then those who are using yeah, it. I worked doing uh, advisory stuff for Jordan Colbert on the Breakaway app. Yep. And again, we have this conversation all the time. I don't think the Breakaway app gets rid of coaches it maybe makes life hard for the really shit coaches, the people who are copy and paste, there's your week, yep. no insight and yep. no look, no, no, no evolution in their coaching season on season. I think they're in trouble. AI is coming for them fast. And it's going to be the same in every profession. I think it's coming for 
bad lawyers. It's coming for bad coders. It's coming for yeah. It's coming for the bottom of every profession. I think so. I think you know. I sort of I have a newsletter that I write. Uh, look at the, the the nexus between health and performance. And I recently wrote about the difference between high perform like a high performance mindset versus elite performance versus professional pay grades. So the concept is kind of professionals are pay grade. Some people make it there. Some people don't. Elite is a level of performance. Those two sometimes correlate. Sometimes they don't. And then high performance is a mindset. And I think if you have a high performance mindset, you're constantly looking for feedback. You're constantly looking to level up. You're constantly looking to improve. I think those people are going to be fine because they're going to use AI as a tool. They're going to evolve from there. Whereas people who are happy and comfortable and don't really want to develop, they're going to struggle because it's coming fast, right? Even, I mean, wearables are coming fast for people. What about your athlete who turns up with a Moxie monitor and says like, hey, what does this mean? Like, what do you do then? Like, so is there any wearable that you're like, so for me, I'm trying to look at, I'm using Aura Ring, I'm using Whoop. And a lot of time, I chat to Dan Plews about this. A lot of time I'm worried that something like heart rate variability is, in its essence, it's, it's a very complicated measurement. And Whoop and Aura Ring have tried to simplify it to just a number. It's like, Number is high equals good. Number is low equals bad. And then people are making training decisions based on high is good, low is bad, when it's actually a lot more nuanced than that. So I suppose the challenge is, or my question is here, how do you take something that is inherently complex and dumb it down enough that it has an application to a wider audience? Yeah, I think from a product design standpoint, they have to do that. And the industry is requiring that of people now because that's what the consumer wants. I think maybe AI helps here, which is AI starts to input a bunch of data, starts to pull a bunch of data. You know, maybe like using Aura or Whoop as an example, maybe Whoop because they've got the Whoop coach. Whoop coach looks at your HRV, but in the context of your heart rate and your respiratory rate and your sleep and maybe a body temperature and goes, oh, well, actually, higher may not be better today. Right? If it could get there and we get AI there, we start to show patterns and go like, hey, this is, this is a problem. Maybe it gets smart enough there to then say, yeah, this is a problem. But again, that's probably more patent recognition than it is truly AI. But I do think we could get there. I think part of the challenge is a lot of people don't want to, you know, back to sort of thinking fast and slow. I'm not sure if you read the book, but... um, Yeah, good book. Yeah, so system one, system two thinking. right? like people want a system one answer and they don't want to do the system two work. And so it's super nuanced and super difficult. I mean, lactate's the other example. I think, yeah, like... Lactate is so much more complex than people give it credit for. And I think, um, yeah. Olaf Boo was saying on the podcast to me, basically, almost no one should be using lactates to draw training conclusions. He said, it's just such, everyone's looking at him on Instagram and Blumafelt and Eden. And our friends going, oh, I need to be doing, sending me links to his Instagram going, I need to be doing lactates. Lactates are where it's at. And I was like, firstly, lactates are around since the 80s. This is not something new that Olaf has figured out. But chatting to him about how easy it is to contaminate a lactate reading and then you draw training deductions because we typically don't do lactates very often. We use it as maybe a baseline test and yeah. at the end of a block. Now you're drawing all your training inferences from bad data. It's not a good spot to be in. No, I mean, lactate, yeah, it, it's a lot more complex than everyone thinks it is. I think he's spot on. I mean, I spent a little bit of time with him and he's influenced my thinking a lot on this. But I think unless you have multiple data sources to serve as like other inputs into your understanding of the physiological situation and you're not taking and unless you're taking lactate very regularly it's going to be hard to not get not not be getting something that could be pretty bad in terms of data quality because if you have other inputs right could be heart rate could be 
you know, you want to use something like Moxie, you want to use whatever it is. You want to use all of these things. You have now got six, eight, 10 objective data sources coming in plus subjective data from the person because that's, you know, the most powerful computers in, is between the two years. So now once we have that and then we have a lactate value, there may be some value there. But if you're doing, yeah, let's get on the treadmill, let's run a bit, okay, lactate, lactate, lactate. Yeah, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. But I think your risk of making a bad decision there is is high, as Ulav says. I honestly think as a lay athlete, without having all the experts in my corner, the best chance I have of making a good decision at the moment is not looking at all these variables and it's, or at least not looking at them straight away and actually checking out myself and saying, how do you feel today? Do you feel like you should, you can go long? Do you feel like you can go fast? Do you feel like you need a day off? Because a lot of these things are becoming a crutch and a proxy for how we actually feel. At, at worst, not just becoming a proxy and a crutch, they can go the other way and make you feel a certain way. There's some interesting research on sleep trackers and, uh, some stuff that looked at, if I tell you you've had a bad night's sleep on your sleep tracker, you feel worse and perform worse the next day. So <laughs> it's, it's actually worse than we're using it as a proxy. It's like it could have a nocebo effect as well, not just a placebo effect. So there's certainly that aspect. I mean, Courtney DeWalter comes to mind. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Courtney's mm-hmm. arguably the world's best ultra runner at the moment, hands down. Um, she won the Tahoe 200. Uh, it's probably her claim to fame, which got her on Joe Rogan. But she's last year she won Western States, UTMB, and hard rock in one year. She set records at like, legend. she's unbelievable. And, but those are 300 mile races in the space of like 10 weeks or something, just unbelievable. So, and she just trains, she gets up and she doesn't eat a particular diet. She just kind of cracks on and gets at the door and jogs for 10 minutes and then decides what she does from there. So it's interesting. She, you know what that aligns with, I had Joe Friel on the podcast and you know, Joe was probably the first person I ever seen as a broke student who with limited access because internet and the ability to get on PubMed and this type of thing wasn't fully developed when I was a student. And Joe was the first person to kind of pull together a bunch of research into a book that I was like, okay, here's a little bit of a manual for how I can train. And chatting to Joe and, you know, he's advanced years now, but this was still such a great idea. He said for super motivated athletes, that what you maybe characterize as high performers, not a bad idea, and that he's experimenting with his athletes, is to take your seven days training and say, okay, David, here's your seven days training. Now you decide what order to do these sessions in. And you wake up and you're like, you know what, I feel like going fast today, but not long. And then you go and do that. I yeah. think there's, there's something in that. Ashley Jones is, was a strength and conditioning coach. She's arguably the world's best in rugby union. Uh, he was with the Crusaders, he was with the All Blacks, he's been over and he talks a bit about this. Is In the early phases, he decides everything for the athlete and as they learn and develop, they slowly get more and more control over what they do to a stage at the end where it's a negotiation and he just feels them out like, hey, what do you feel like doing today? How do you feel about this? What do you want to change there? And then they go and do their own thing. And I think back to sort of full circle, back to that young kid I developed, like that was where success was there as well and, and our physical education. I think in a motivated athlete, I think you're spot on. If they are engaging, then I think that's the right way to do it. The challenge is, in my experience, there are two types of athletes that get that become really successful. There is the athlete who is so engaged and wants to know everything. That's the Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld. Like those guys know more about training than many coaches do. And then there's the other side, which is like, I don't know a damn thing and I don't care. Just tell yeah. me what to do. I'm going to get on the bike and I'm going to do it. And if you tell me something that's a little bit wrong, I'm not going to question it. And I'm probably going to do it anyway. So if, I, if you miscalculate my power numbers, I'm probably going to hold a higher power 
And it's probably going to surprise both of us. I didn't realize I could do that. You didn't realize I could do that because I don't question anything. And I think those are the two. And I think if you get stuck in the middle zone, it can be a bit challenging for both coach and athlete. Well, you know, observing that latter group in life after elite sport, I found that a lot of those hardcore just stop cold turkey training afterwards oh, where yeah. the former group, the Gustav and Blumenfeld's group are, they're lifelong learners. They're coming out of triathlon and they're going to say, oh, maybe I'll take up a bit of cross-country skiing. And, you know, they're never going to get to the same lofty heights as they are in triathlon, but they're still pushing themselves because there's something great. Even for me this off-season, I started running a lot more and you go out and, you know, you try and do, you know, a 2K interval or two 2K efforts inside a run. And the first time I do it, I'm like six-minute kilometer pace going, oh my God, I'm hobbling down the road like an old man. But then you get a couple of runs under the belt and you come back in a week later and it's 5.30 pace. You come back a month later and it's 4.30 pace. You come back a month later and it's 3.30 pace. And you're like, this progression, I could win the New York City Marathon yeah. here. And then it's like the progression stops. Yeah. But it's like, you get that amazing feedback loop of, I do some training, I get faster. I do some training, I get faster. And I think that high performance group you're talking about in life after their initial career, they keep going and they keep learning and they keep evolving. Yeah, and I mean... I know many elite athletes who have also done very well academically at the same time. And it's the same sort of mentality. It's just like they hold themselves to really high standards. They want to learn. They, you know, they want to get better. They are seeking feedback and they're trying to improve, right? And that might be in any field of their life. It can be post-career, all of that. But I'm happy to hear you're running. I think I was chatting to somebody earlier today about this. I think cyclists underestimate how much better running transfers to the bike than the other way around. I think Elite cyclists make pretty good runners generally, and I've seen this uh, a couple of times if you can sort of like allow the musculoskeletal system to adapt. But I think the other way is really potent for, for cyclists. I absolutely love running. It's, it's so, so different to cycling. You can get a really nice run in in 60 minutes, long run, yep. 90 minutes. Yep. 90-minute bike ride? Yeah. Not much to it. Like It's about a four to one. Right. So it's roughly, it actually, well, I think, it, I mean, roughly that seems to be about it. Like you'd probably, what's your minimum to get out the door on the bike? Like probably two hours. Yeah. Half an hour. Right. But yeah. half hour, yeah. run, half hour is really nice. It's a really nice. Yeah. It is actually run. Really nice. yeah. So it's, it's a roughly and, two is to one, I reckon. No, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful sport. It's something I'm hoping to incorporate and keep going like through my cycling season. And I'm actually interested to see how that balances. I've, I had a couple of runners on the podcast recently, a friend of mine, Mick Clossy, who's a 212 marathon runner. Oh, wow. And I was talking to him about it and his opinion on it was, I'd be interested to hear yours, almost everyone runs too hard. He's like, you need to be just doing super, super easy runs for a long period of time. He said, people come into running that he sees and they're like, I want to train for a marathon this year. And he's like, he's trying to get them out of that mindset. He's like, you want to become a runner, not that you want to train for a marathon. And if you want to become a runner, you start running regularly and then maybe we have a go at a 5k in six months and then maybe we have a go at a 10k six months later but he said everyone that comes in saying i want to do a marathon this year and they have a i want to do a three-hour marathon he said a good chunk of them aren't even making the start line yeah it's running injury wise is so risky i 100 agree with him i'm also have been very influenced by mentors of mine and, and the strength and conditioning field where it's kind of you got to earn the right so like you didn't do a barbell back squat until you could squat properly Right. And it was kind of, you had to earn the right. And I kind of take that to running as well. I think if you haven't run a good 5k and that doesn't happen on the first go, it takes three, four, five, six, eight goes. 
why are you trying to run 10K? Let's get good at one thing and then we can transfer across. And the, I see this progression a lot is I've done a 5K, I'm going to do a 10K, I'm going to do a half marathon, I'm going to do a marathon. And you have these people who do four in a year, five, 10, half marathon. And, and that's fine. And they might complete them, but it's hard to compete. And when I say compete, I don't mean I'm competitive to win this thing. It's like, this is actually good for me and my physiology and I'm not going to be injured afterwards and I'm not going to have a bad day and all those things. So it takes a long- We see it in triathlon as well. People that are shit at sprint distance. Yep. You'll talk to them and be like, oh, what's the plan? You're going to try and get a bit faster and you know, work on your 5K run? It's like, nah, I'm going to go up to Olympic. It's like, what? And you see the same progression, maybe not over the course of 12 months unless they're extreme accelerated timeline, but over the course of 24 months, they're going from being shit at sprint to shit at Ironman. And you're like- what yep. was the point of that? Yeah. I mean, and that speaks to my personality is, you know, I've done, I don't know how many marathons now, but I've been running for a good amount of time and I've done three ultras and they've all been 50 to 55 Ks and I'm not even considering going longer than that. I would I, like 60 kilometers is like maybe something I'd consider. And most people look at me and go like, what do you mean? I mean, even for my first ultra, I was in the mountains. Uh, I'd spent some time in Europe. I crewed someone for UTMB and she was like, are you going to run an ultra this year? I was like, no. She's like, you are so ready. Run a 50K, you'll be fine. She ended up being <laughs> right and I ran a really good 50K when I got home back to Australia at the time. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot in that. I think part of the challenge with running is it's been punishment for a lot of people as part of team sports. Uh, I also think we generally run as hard as we can for the distance, which ends up being kind of that FTP threshold sweet spot zone yeah. in terms of intensity. And running slowly is quite hard because the difference between cycling and running is, I mean, you could theoretically cycle super slowly and not be able to stay up. Like that is theoretically possible. But by definition, running needs to be of a certain pace or you're actually walking. And yeah, that's the challenge for people. This was my, this was my experience when I started running that I almost couldn't do a zone two run. As soon as I got out the door and I wasn't walking, I was right at the bottom of zone three. Yeah. And that took me a lot of time just doing right at the bottom of zone three before that actually became a zone two run. Yeah. And I tend to, I, I think, especially if you're very fit, that's the case, right? Because you muscularly can tolerate and that sort of thing. So, so I think you just have to be able to do that and try and understand that and keep it as uncomfortably slow as you can until that becomes more zone two and you gain a level of efficiency. Uh, but I tend to agree with you. A lot of people are running a lot. People look at me and they go, how are you running a hundred kilometers a week or how are you running whatever? And it's like, well, I'll run a lot of it slowly, probably slower than you're running some of your runs right now. Like I've run a, you know, I need your friend, but I've run a two, two hour, 42 marathon. Uh, Very fast. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but you know, I'll do most of my training at 520 per kilometer in comparison to three, I think it's 350 something per kilometer for uh, my even marathon pace. So it's very, very different. I can't actually believe how there's a friend of mine and he's trying to run 270. And actually, maybe by the time this has come out, he'll Seville will be over. He's trying to run 217 in Seville. Yep. And I've got out doing a few runs with him. He's like, oh, you know, we'll we'll pick it up to 345 pace for a kilometer. And for me, that feels like it's sprinting. He's like, we'll go down to 330 for a kilometer. And that does feel like a full-on sprint for me. But his race pace is even faster than that. It's unfathomable as a non-runner how fast these guys are going in marathons i think running has done a terrible job of this it's most people have got no context like i tell people i've run a marathon if they've got no idea they're like oh if you run like how close to two hours were you and i'm like uh 242 and like oh so you're real slow and i'm like yeah i mean yes but also also no so i think we've done a terrible job in running for context i think if anything park run has helped running a lot uh to allow to have people understand what 5k is actually like and what speed that actually yeah. is but I can tell you now, if you watched 
side on because most marathons are filmed front on. So you've got no context for how fast these people are moving. But if you watch them run past you side on, you would be astounded at how fast they were moving. I mean, that is very quick. 21 kilometers an hour is fast. That is very fast. I think in general, we've just done a bad job of context in sport. My next door neighbor always asks me, am I riding the Tour de France when I go out training? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's certainly something that I think is bad. I mean, cycling, until recently, I had no context for understanding what the difference between like pro, pro tour versus pro continental versus world tour versus like all that stuff. And I just, it's really hard to understand that in a way that for some reason in football or, or rugby, it isn't. And I think we need to do a better job of that in endurance sports is really allowing people to understand and allowing them to see those things. Like I, if you told me, like I understand what high, high power is, but I wouldn't know what I should be riding my power at. If you said to me, let's go for an easy ride, I would have, and you put a power meter on my bike, it'd be a surprise to me. I don't, I don't know what that number would be. I'm really excited to announce our show sponsor today is Silka. For those of you who might not know, Silka offers best in the game bike accessories like tools, pumps, plus all your everyday bike maintenance kit like chain wax and even sealant. What sets Silka apart is their commitment to quality, beauty and craftsmanship. Trust me, these products are built to last. I've been replacing my track pump probably on average every two years, but my dad has had a Silka track pump since I can remember and it's still going perfectly strong, almost without a blemish on it. So if you want to spoil yourself or maybe you want to treat one of your cycling friends, they have so many amazing products over on the Silka website. There's torque wrench sets, bike bags, 3D printed bike computer mounts and loads of other really cool pieces all over there. And as a Roadman listener, you can get 13% off all Silka products. Just use the code ROADMAN13 at checkout. Not only does this get you a fantastic deal, but it also lets Silka know that sponsoring this podcast is valuable. Whether you're shopping for a gift or you're treating yourself, Silka has something for every cyclist who hates the throwaway culture and loves quality. So check them out and don't forget to use the code ROADMAN13 at checkout. The details are in the description below. Well, I think the thing that has been interesting in the last couple of years is the advent of Zwift, MyWoosh, and these yep. online platforms because now everyone knows about watts per kilogram. Yep. But what they don't realize is, because most people haven't had a chance to ride with World Tour riders, the numbers they're putting out, they're not putting them out tapered, fresh, indoors with a fan on them and their girlfriend handing them sandwiches and water bottles in a safe environment. They're putting out seven watts per kilo in the third week of a Grand Tour after six hours of racing at altitude, they're putting those numbers out. And when you train with these guys, you get that insight. I remember training with Mike Barry in Toronto. He was riding for our Team Sky at the time. And we'd race up to local coffee shop and it'd be like a four or five minute climb. And to try hold onto him on that was just, you got this just slap across the face to just say, we're not the same thing. Like we might look the same in kit. My neighbor might think we're about the same, but we are not the same. There's something physiologically under the hood going on that's very different in those world tour. They're X-Men. They're yeah. the 1% of the 1%. And I think what you're talking about a lot of time is is actually what they're referring to in the literature as durability or fatigue resistance. It's probably, I mean, they're fresh, whatever may be impressive, but their ability to do something fatigued or after a fatiguing bout of exercise is unbelievable. So, yeah. I mean, Ilya Kipchoge's 5K, Pretty impressive, no question. But his ability to run 5Ks after he's run 37 kilometers is otherworldly. That's where it's real impressive is he could probably, if we lined up a group of people we knew, the fastest runners we knew, and try to beat him in a marathon, each running a 5K segment, we would struggle. 
And that's the bit that's really crazy. Yeah, it was even talking to my buddy about his 2.17 and his pacing strategy. And he's talking about his pacing all the way through. And then his last 10K, he's trying to do a pickup and bring it home in 31.30 for 10K. Yeah. And it was only when he said that that I was like, I can't run a 31.30 for 10K now, fresh with the new super runners on. There's no way I can run that time. I could give him an old pair of shoes and get him to try and run that last 10K. Whatever he ends up running, he would still beat me in super shoes, even me. Like that is so fast. 31.30, it's such a fast time. For 10Ks. It's insane. Uh, just to finish up, David, we talked a lot about aging and technology. Is there anything in that intersection of aging and technology that you're kind of excited about or you see in the pipeline down the road that's potentially impactful for anti-aging? I'm actually really worried about the space. I think there's going to be a ton of stuff that comes out that is probably not going to be as good as we think it is or it's going to be oversold uh, in terms of aging space. It's just such a hot space at the moment, given the longevity push and all those things. But I think if I was to say anything, I think we're going to start getting, I mean, I've seen quite a few of these startups pop up that are looking at multiomics, trying to draw conclusions from big data and understand that space. And I think there's probably something there that will come out that will be great. I don't know what it is, but it'd be cool looking at, let's integrate all of this data and start to try and understand maybe using some predictive modeling. So I think that's probably the big thing, uh, we are going to deal with a ton of what do we do with this data, which is, you know, your if you came into hospital and you had atrial fibrillation with symptoms of it in the hospital, I knew like there's, a, you know, a monkey could do that. It's very straightforward. The guidelines are very clear on what to do with you, where your risks lie and all that stuff. If you come in with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation on your Apple Watch, I have no idea what to do. And it's really hard to understand that. We don't know what the base rate in society is for most of these things. So with all this new technology that's ahead of the curve, which, which is seeing changes earlier, we should have no idea what that data means in people who are otherwise well. And that's going to be the, the huge barrier, the huge hurdle we have to get over first. And that's for any new tech. That's for HRV. Now we're looking at it and going, okay, this is probably normal in certain people. But 10 years ago, it was really hard to understand that because all the research is in heart failure or something like that. So... You have this curve that happens with everything and we're going to see a lot of that in people who are healthy and that's really hard for doctors and the medical system because they talk about the worried well and it's, you know, it's their, it's like a big bugbear for them is like people come in with this stuff and we don't know, you know, it's probably fine, but we don't know what to do. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the kind of the pendulum swings and the pendulum is swinging very far in, you know, you mentioned Andrew Huberman there, Peter T is someone else that's, you know, gained a lot of popularity online and they're talking about you know zone two training like this is something new like this is something that endurance athletes haven't been doing for the last 50 60 years and because of that there's this huge industry has popped up around i don't want to say quick fixes but marketing leads itself to selling a solution and so they're trying to sell solutions be it you know some of them have marginal or sometimes in some cases like saunas good benefits but we're compression boots ketones saunas cold therapy there's a whole industry springing up around longevity and that's the pendulum for me at one end i feel like the pendulum's going to swing back because the pendulum always swings and there's an unglamorous reality to a word you've used a lot in the podcast is high performance yep I always think high performance happens in the shadows and there's an unglamorous reality to what happens in the shadows. Michael Phelps had a, a quote back in the day and I remember printing it out and having it in a little scrapbook at the front of my journal and it's what we do in the dark matters in the light. Yeah. And I think that's what high performance is. Yeah. And more and more people from this group that are looking for the longevity hacks 
are going to start to realize that the unglamorous work happens in the shadows. Yeah. I've written about this a little bit in my, uh, uh, in my newsletter again, where like the big rocks matter the most. There's no question about that. Right. And it's that whole big rocks, little rock sand solution. Like your cold plunge is probably helpful, but not as helpful as sleeping properly and eating properly and doing the exercise. And I think that's one aspect to it. The other aspect is, especially with high performance, it doesn't need as much money as you think. Like there's a great book called the gold mine effect looking at the Brazilian uh, football development, South Korean golfers, Russian tennis players, and Jamaican sprinters, and looking at the environments that these athletes come from and what creates them. And so much of that is culture and role modeling. It's not facilities. It's grass ovals with you know a pair of old starting blocks, but you have a mentality to get better and all those things. And that'll come across to longevity, right? The people who are living the longest, right, if you've watched the Blue Zone stuff, to are not using any tech. They're not doing, they're not measuring HRV. They're not caring about that stuff. They're living a good life with healthy food, good community, sleeping well, exercising enough. You know, it's all that stuff, laughing. It's everything there that's going to help. And the rest is the icing on the cake. And the key is to not make the cake out of icing. So, yeah. (laughs) I think it's Socrates has a quote about, let's not waste time arguing what a good citizen should be. Just be a good citizen. And I think about that transposed into the health space let's stop wasting time arguing what a healthy person should be and just get out and be a healthy person. Yeah. And the way to navigate that space is what's nobody arguing about? Probably do those things. Like nobody's arguing that you should be eating more fruit and vegetables. I mean, there are a couple of people who probably say that, but for the most part, people generally agree that fruit and vegetables are probably healthy. So go that way, double down on that. You know, there's not a lot of people who are arguing that you should be exercising. Okay, let's double down on that. Maybe some people say more zone two, maybe some people don't, but... Generally, people, there's, there's good agreement on fruit and vegetables, lifting enough weights, doing enough endurance training, sleeping well, having community, being happy. Like, there's good agreement on those. So, like, go do that and then worry about the rest later. David, it's a brilliant podcast. I could chat forever about this because you're just a fountain of knowledge. Uh, I will link up your newsletter to reference a couple of times yep. in the show notes. So, people, I would highly advise to go and check that out. Thanks Appreciate that. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's interview. If you like this interview, I'm going to put another interview up here, which I know you're really going to enjoy. And please click on that subscribe button. Talk to you soon.